Over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at the book of 1 Peter. Now, i got to tell you, there's no way in five weeks you can really do justice to this book. There's a lot of depth there. But hopefully, it'll just whet your appetite to study deeper, learn a little bit more, and gain the insight that comes from this book written late in the life of the Apostle Peter. This morning, we're going to take a look at chapter 1, which reminds us that our faith is greater than gold. We are fascinated with gold. Five years ago this month, gold hit an all-time high of $1,900 per ounce. Just this week, disappointment kind of filled the land of Poland after losing anticipated search for the lost and, um, well, elusive Nazi gold train. When they dug where they thought it would be, there was absolutely nothing. We marvel at Miss Liberty's torch It used to be glass with a light in it. Now it is 14 karat gold since 1986, or 24 karat gold since 1986. Uncle Sam tells us that in Fort Knox, the United States government has 147 million ounces of gold at the current price of 1350 per ounce. It is worth $199 billion, which is only 1% of our national debt. And it has been estimated in history, all through history, that a total of 192 tons of gold have been mined. With its limited availability and its global desirability, there are few things of greater intrinsic worth than gold. But one of them that shines far brighter is our faith. Now we're going to read some passages in 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to ask a favor because we're, we're going to begin talking about faith that is greater than gold. And I'd like to ask you to stand with me. And I'd like for us to read out loud this first passage from, uh, from 1 Peter. We don't do that too often, but it's a lengthy passage and I thought it'd be good if we would just read it together. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you may not have seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can be seated. When you open the pages of 1 Peter, what you need to understand is that Peter is writing to a persecuted church. 
The letter of 1 Peter was probably written somewhere between 64 and 68 AD. At least most historians agree that that would have been the time frame because Peter was martyred between 64 and 68 AD during the persecution of Emperor Nero. And so the very last date this book could have been written was 68 AD. And it all began with the fire that consumed nearly all of Rome. It began on July the 18th, 64 AD. It swept through the city, taking with it almost every building except for just a small portion of Rome's buildings. Now, history does not give us the full answer. Nero was blamed at the time for starting the fire, but there are, there are different conflicting reports. So we really don't know if he started the fire or not, but that was his reputation. And that's what people were saying. And so Nero decided he needed a scapegoat to get the burden off of his shoulders onto somebody else. And he picked this new religious group that was seemingly sweeping through Rome. He blamed the Christians for the burning of the city. And that's when the first big persecution broke out against the Christians in Rome. Things that had never been done before were done to the Christians in Rome. They were fed to the lions. Nero had then sewn into animal skins and then allowed packs of dogs attack them. He would fasten them to spinning wheels on big poles, cover them with tar and pitch, spin the wheel light the Christian on fire, and the firelight illuminated his garden parties. You talk about desperate times. They were desperate times. And Peter was living in Rome at the time. Peter knew what he was writing about. You see, a Christian would leave home in the morning and not know if they would come back in the evening. And so they had to be ready at any point in time to know this might be my last day in this world. So you would think, you would think, wouldn't you, that Peter's words would be somber. But this is not a gloomy book. As you've already read with me this morning, there are words of hope and excitement and joy and praise. And I love the imagery, these word pictures that Peter gives us in these opening verses of chapter 1. And I'm, I just want to highlight them for you here for just to look at these pictures. When you have a down day, when your times are tough, when you think you just can't keep going, you pick up 1 Peter chapter 1 and read these pictures again. Here's the first of these pictures under this banner of a faith that is greater than gold. New birth. Not just birth, but a new birth. What an uplifting image. We are waiting for a new birth in our family. In a short time, our daughter Rebecca is going to give birth to our sixth grandchild. And I got to tell you, I'm as excited about number six as I was about number one. Another child to love, another child by whom to be loved. I mean, there's just something exciting in the air about a new birth. As a matter of fact, there's something exciting in the air about anything that's new in our lives. A new adventure at college. A new job following graduation. A new relationship that leads to marriage. A new car. A new house. A new hip or knee or hearing aid. <laughs> time has a way of changing what we're excited about, you know. <laughs> God has given us a new chance at life. The most exhilarating new is a new birth. Anytime a new birth comes into your household, you get the picture. God says, I have given you a new birth. How exciting. Here's another word picture. 
lasting inheritance. Not just an inheritance, but a lasting inheritance. Here's another uplifting picture. What a blessing that grows out of sorrow. You see, the heartbreak of an inheritance is that somebody has to die in order for an inheritance to become a reality. But there is this, there is this joy that out of the sorrow comes a beautiful gift. When I look out the back windows upstairs or I drive around and I look at the construction that's going on between the two buildings and I, and I know that our, our children's department is going to be a lot safer. I know that we're going to have a, a new entrance down below that will be a really great place for people to gather and enjoy one another's company. When, when I see all that happening, I am reminded every time that that whole thing has been made possible by a lady who was a vital part of this congregation who loved this church so well that she left us her estate, which will take care of paying for the construction of that project. She would be thrilled to know that it is helping our children. And out of the sorrow of us saying goodbye to Marquita Littell, Marquita, out of that sorrow of her death comes the joy of an inheritance that will bless this congregation long after we're gone to our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, and beyond. You see, a lasting inheritance is a beautiful thing. Now, Peter's letter does not speak of an earthly inheritance. His letter speaks of our eternal inheritance. What, what an in encouraging message to those who walked out of their door one day and didn't ever come home and for their family who was left behind to say ah but we know that they are in a better place that we have this hope that even though we may give up our life here we have a better place to live that is not just like an inheritance in this world that eventually gets spent or eventually crumbles or eventually goes away. This is a lasting inheritance forever. And it doesn't matter whether we're martyred or whether we die of old age because death comes to all of us. And then what? And Peter says, we have this lasting inheritance. You say, well, how can I be sure about that? <laughs> the assurance or guarantee of such a promise is found in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Words are cheap. Anybody can promise anything. But that doesn't ensure delivery. There has to be some guarantee behind an inheritance. In my teenage years, my great uncle George was still driving the 1940 Packard that he had bought brand new. I absolutely loved that car. He kept it spotless. You couldn't hear it rolling down the streets of my hometown in Huntingburg. And I remember one time at a family gathering sitting at a table with he and my other great uncle and, and I just said, Uncle George, when the day comes that you are ready to sell that Packard, I said, I'd like to have first chance to buy it. You all know how much I've enjoyed antique cars through the years. And Uncle George said, well, he said, I'm never going to sell it. He said, but when, you, when I die, he says, if your Uncle Jack doesn't want it, he said, you can, you can have it. And Uncle Jack looked and kind of shrugged and he said, well, I don't, I don't want it. He said, you can, you can have it. When I was in college, my Uncle George passed away. Nobody in the family got the Packard. Not myself, not Uncle Jack, nobody got it. It went into the estate and was sold to somebody from out of the state of Indiana. I don't ever know what happened to it. But you see, there was nothing to guarantee. Words, words don't matter if there is anything to back them up. Now, I believe that both of my great uncles were very sincere in what they were telling me. I don't think there was any, anything less than sincere in what they were saying. But, but it was not done in a legal way. Had, had something been spelled out in a will, 
then it would have been guaranteed because you see, just words cannot stack up against the law. Good intentions are never enough. Most religions, I suspect, are sincere. Most religious people, I suspect, are sincere. But good intentions are not enough to guarantee an inheritance. Remember, an inheritance requires the death of the benefactor. And I know of only one who died and then sealed that with his resurrection. Promises that are spelled out in his last will and New Testament. That's why it's called a testament. It is because it is our inheritance. And he sealed it with his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I don't know any religion ever that has somebody like Jesus. You want to put power behind the promise. You need to look to the one who sealed it with his death and his resurrection. Third picture that we see here is shielded faith. Now notice what Peter wrote in this text. He says, when you place your faith in the resurrection, you are shielded by God's power until the time you receive your inheritance. Your faith results in protection in this world. God does not leave us defenseless. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus? In chapter 6, verse 16, it says, in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. There are companies, and they oftentimes do it in the shape of a shield. I think it's interesting. There are companies that print stickers, and you can put them on your window. You can put them on your door. You can put them where anybody who is thinking about robbing your house is going to see them. And it simply says, this house protected by such and such a security company. It's just a sticker. There's no security company behind the sticker. So if the, if, if the robber knows that, you're hosed. Because the minute they break in the house... There's no security power behind that to make that sticker real. It's just a sticker, no matter the fact that it's shaped like a shield. But if you have a security company that puts the sticker there, the minute your house is invaded, there's a call that goes to the local authorities. The police are there at the house to apprehend the thief, and you are in good shape. You see, you need a shield that has something, or in this case, someone behind it. Spiritually speaking, some people have only the sticker of what they think is right and true to protect them for eternity. Well, I'm a good person. I'm as good as anybody that walks on the face of the earth. Or, well, God loves everyone. I'm going to be okay. That's window sticker theology. And it won't get you past your last breath. Here's the truth. If God raised Jesus from the dead, he can give you a shield to protect you until heaven comes. Guaranteed. Here's another picture. Short time. The suffering part lasts only a short time. I love this picture. Peter says, you may have to suffer, but it won't last long in comparison to what we have to look forward to. And while most of us often look at the difficult times and we think, will this ever end? I don't know about you, but when, when I go through tough times, I'm thinking, oh, this feels like it's going on forever. Will it ever end? And then you look back and think, well, that wasn't so bad. You get to the other side. You look back. Okay, we, we made it through that. Peter says, you'll suffer for a short time. But trust me, any suffering you have in this world cannot compare to the glory of what lies ahead. So folks, in the, in the difficult moments, in the tough times of life, hang in there. In light of eternity, it's just a short time. And then we have this picture. He says, a new birth into a 
living hope. Research tells us that one can survive at the extreme 80 days without food, eight days without water, four minutes without oxygen, but you cannot survive at all without hope. And it's not just an ordinary hope that he's talking about here, but a living hope. And I remind you that hope isn't about something. Hope is placed in someone. A living Savior makes possible a living hope. I think what makes the, the Christian life in this world difficult is that we can't see it with these two eyes. I have to see it with the eyes of my soul. It is a faith walk. We walk by faith, not by sight. And I don't know about you. I've never seen God face to face. I've never reached out and touched him. I believe that he is real. I believe that with all my heart because I think all the evidence points in that direction. And will you remember this? Everybody lives by faith in something. Even if it's a theory. Even if you're an atheist, you still live by faith in something. For my two cents worth, the only one that makes sense is faith in the living God who made the sacrifice for us on our behalf. Without God, you see, there is no hope beyond this moment. All of life becomes meaningless if if all there is is just right now. A few years ago, a lab study was done. Uh, A couple lab rats were used. They were testing this whole concept of anticipation or or hope. And as I understand how the test went, they filled a jar about half full with water, put a rat into the water, screwed on a lid that allowed air into the jar, and that rat lived for three hours. They did the experiment again the second time with another rat. This time they left the lid off. That rat lived for 36 hours. The difference being the expectation factor. The rat could see that there was a way out and he kept trying to make it out. Faith in Jesus is an open jar hope. While it may seem that we are drowning in our difficulties at times, there is an opening at the top of the jar, and we believe, we know, that someday we'll get out of this mess. No difficulty lasts forever. And what God has promised beyond, if we remain faithful, if we're covered by this shield of faith, why, what is yet to be is greater than gold. Now, here's the second thing in the passage I want you to see, and that is that actions are to be greater than gold as well. Let me just read the, the, the second portion here. You follow along on the screen. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on the Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God." Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 
Okay, Peter says, because you have been given a new birth, a lasting inheritance, a shielded faith, a short time of suffering, and a living hope, you need to respond in the appropriate manner. You ought to be holy like God is holy. <laughs> now, I read those words, and I kind of gulp. Holy like God is holy. Who in the world can do that? And, and, and be honest, will you please? Holy, in the way we hear the word today in our culture, is sort of an off-putting word, isn't it? When you hear the word holy used, what do you think of? You think of somebody saying, oh, he thinks he's holier than thou. Or she's a holy person, a goody, goody. And yet the biblical concept of holy is not even remotely related to that kind of thought. Holy doesn't mean a goody two-shoes. Holy means that you are separated from the things of this world so that you can focus on God. That you turn your face from the shadows to the light of the king. William Barclay says, holiness in the New Testament sense of the term is concerned not so much with where a man is, but with the direction in which he is facing. The Christian is called to be a person the direction of whose life is towards God. When you're looking at the sun, the shadows fall behind you. When your back is to the sun, you're facing the shadows. And it is in the shadows that the evil things are done. God says, you keep your face toward me. You keep looking to me. You be a reflection of me, and the world will be able to see your hope, your new birth, your shielded faith, your lasting inheritance. And there's two motives for this kind of holiness. One is what's happened in the past. In light of everything that God has done for us, don't you think you ought to live like he wants you to live? I need to live like he wants me to live. That's my thank you note to God. If somebody gives you something nice, isn't it important to say thank you? Sure it is. And, and when God has done so much for us, based on what he's done for us, we, we ought to live our life as a, as a living thank you note for what God has done. I mean, isn't this the, 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 the dream and the desire of parents that their children grow up to imitate the values that they've tried to instill within their kids? And have you ever noticed as parents, your, your kids are, are probably in some ways the worst around you as, as they are around anybody. Have you ever had a parent come up or a, a teacher come up or a friend come up and say, oh, your kid is an angel. And when you pick yourself up off the floor, you say, really, my, my child, my kid, you're, you're talking about my boy, my girl? It's because they, 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 they are emulating your values out in public where it really counts. They're living a life that reflects what you've tried to teach them. Don't you think the Heavenly Father wants the same thing? That these values he's tried to instill, who has confirmed them with the death and resurrection of his son, he said, I, I want you to live like this so the world can see what I'm up to. And the second motivation is the future. Did you notice what he said in verse 13? Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. Okay, he's talking about down the road, when he comes again. In the first part that we read out loud, he talked about the last times. This is a picture of the future. Since you do not know what tomorrow holds, you be prepared. It says, be self-controlled. Prepare your minds. Think. Use your head. 
God gave you a good brain. Now use it to make a difference as you look to the future. Garrison Keillor, creator of the Prairie Home Companion radio program, said, Beauty isn't worth thinking about. What's important is your mind. You don't want a $50 haircut on a 50-cent head. (laughs) Think. And when you think, when you use this brain that God gave you, you will be prepared for whatever comes, even the unexpected. Last Sunday night, I had the privilege of preaching at the Bunker Hill Christian Church down in southern Indiana. And on my way home, I hadn't had supper, and it's about 8 o'clock. And so I stopped at an Arby's to pick up a sandwich. I just got a to-go order. I walked in, walked up to the counter, and, I, uh, and to the young lady that was behind the cash register, I said, How you doing? You know, just kind of that common greeting. I get ready to place my order. And she said, oh, I'm, ju- I'm just trying to keep it all together. What do you do with that? You know, you're... <laughs> I said, oh, you know, (laughs) and she said, well, she said, McDonald's across the street closed at seven o'clock. This is eight o'clock closed at seven o'clock. And she said, it's a madhouse. It is a madhouse. I walked in. There was nobody in line when I walked in. (laughs) I was the only one in line. And when I walked out, I was the only one still in line. When I walked out with my food, I looked in the dining room. There were three tables that had people sitting around them. And I'm thinking a madhouse. They were ill-prepared for the McDonald's to close across the street. You can look at life in a lot of different ways. God is saying, I want want you to be prepared. You don't know when I'm coming back. I'm shielding you by my faith. I've given you a new birth. I've given you an inheritance that lasts forever. I've given you a living hope. Now, use your brain and be prepared. Be self-controlled. Be obedient to God. Don't conform to this world's ideology. Love one another deeply. We've not been redeemed by, did you notice? Silver or gold. What you've been redeemed by is greater than gold. The blood of Jesus Christ. Sometime you may remember as a child when you were growing up, you had to get cleaned up to go to someplace special. And maybe it was a long time before you got there. Did you ever end up being messy, disheveled, a mess by the time you got there and your parents weren't too pleased with you? (laughs) And you wished you had stayed cleaned up? Can I remind you, when the day comes and everything that 1 Peter has taught us is true and Jesus comes again, you'll be glad you stayed cleaned up, shielded by his power, walking by faith living in hope, anticipating an inheritance. Man, what we have to look forward to is simply incredible. The day will come that we'll arrive at heaven's gate by his invitation. And that may be the day that we realize that our faith in him is greater than gold because when we set foot in that city, (laughs) gold is so plentiful that I use it to pave the streets greater than gold. 